ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, as we head toward a record number of drowning deaths this summer, experts claim the swim between the flags message is being dangerously misinterpreted. Also, the government gears up to get its tax cut changes through Parliament. The Greens say they don't go far enough, but will they stand in the way? Adam Bant is my guest. And the Australian scientists braving the extremes of Antarctica to carry out crucial research into the effects of climate change. Every time we had a big snowstorm, we had to dig out all of our tents. We have to dig out all of our equipment. So sometimes getting the work done is is really quite challenging. Thanks for your company. There's still one month of summer left, but Royal Life Saving is warning this season is on track to be one of the deadliest in our waterways. With 72 deaths nationwide so far, lifesavers are calling on swimmers to be more cautious. But one expert argues the message swim between the flags is being dangerously misinterpreted. Isabel Masali with this report. As temperatures soar past 40 degrees in Perth, Scarborough Beach is a popular place to be. Well, it's really crazy, actually. We just arrived uh, yesterday from Bali, and Bali was quite hot and humid, but here it's just too hot. (laughs) And it's like it feels like you burn yourself. (laughs) For this swimmer and those around her, cooling off is the priority. Staying close to the lifeguards, not so much. From here, the red and yellow flags are a fair distance away. It's like I just pop up the gazebo wherever I can, but I make sure to don't go really deep in the water. I'm a pretty good swimmer, so I'm not worried too much about that. But, yeah, I don't know if that's good or bad. Probably it's bad. (laughs) But, yeah. How often do you swim near the lifeguards? Uh, Quite often. Uh, generally, when I am alone, I, I go there. But when with my family, with my husband, <laughs> I, I can go uh, wherever we want. Yeah, we can go. Never. Yeah, very rarely. Only if I'm with, like, people with young kids. Um, yeah, I've been coming to the beach all my life, so I kind of feel like I can look after myself. The only thing, I suppose, when I think about whether I should swim in the flags or not is... It sounds really weird. I shouldn't think of it about sharks, you know. Royal Life Saving is urging Australians to stay vigilant around the water, saying even strong swimmers are at risk of drowning. Nationwide, 72 people have drowned this summer. That's 24% higher than this time last year. And by the end of this season, it projects that number to reach more than 100. Chief Executive Justin Scar says that's particularly concerning because a typical summer sees about 90 deaths recorded. Look, the common thread here is uh, is swimming skills or the absence of swimming skills. Um, I, I really truly believe that Australians are just not swimming as well as they used to. Uh, we're seeing a number of people um, wading and playing in waterways, whether that's an unpatrolled beach location or it's an inland waterway like a river and lake. Um, and then when the, when they the current takes them, they get to deep water. They simply lack the swimming skills to keep themselves safe or float for long enough for, for rescue services to, to come to their aid. And it's people from low-income communities who are at most risk, 
according to drowning statistics. Our drowning uh, reports each and every year show that people living in um, low-income communities as, are as much as twice or three times as likely to drown that those living in um, the high-income high areas of our, our cities. Now, this is particularly a, a concern around outer regional, sorry, outer urban areas and also regional areas where people simply lack access to good swimming pools and, and learn to swim programs. His message for those heading to the water this summer is be aware of your limitations and stay close to lifeguards. It may seem like a simple one, but research from Dr Masaki Shibata shows our beach safety messages can be confusing. His survey of people at Sydney's Bondi Beach found some who were wading or playing in the water thought they had to avoid the flags. And that study um, shows that about 30% of the beach beachgoers thinks that swimming between the flags means you have to swim and if you don't swim or you can't swim, then you should stay outside the flags. Uh, we tested um, this sort of similar, uh, similar questions and then what we found was that about 50% of Australian University students, including both domestic and international students, uh, thinks that um, swimming between flags um, means that surfers should also be between the flags. So that actually tells us that um, they don't actually know the purpose of the flags. Dr Masaki Shibata is a volunteer lifesaver and an academic with Monash University. His research also found some safety signs don't translate well and the pictures can also be misinterpreted. So he says we need to rethink the approach. We may actually need to more explore, probably more research-wise, how the actually, um, for example, people um, from different country or different language backgrounds interpret all the message differently. But one simple suggestion he has is to change the phrase swim between the flags to stay between the flags. Isabel Masali reporting there with Nell Whitehead. Well, now to the cost of living, and there could be more good news on the horizon. A major new survey suggests Australian businesses are starting to prioritise market share over profits. Now, that may sound technical, but in a nutshell, it means shoppers could soon be paying significantly less at the checkout as sellers seek to bring in new customers. And some economists say that may be enough to bring inflation down to a point where the Reserve Bank begins cutting interest rates as early as May. David Taylor has more. It's now cheaper for businesses to put their products on the shop shelf. So we're seeing quite a big cutback. That's the NAB's chief economist, Alan Oster. The pandemic and the huge supply chain bottlenecks that came with it sent business costs soaring. Businesses passed on those costs to customers and inflation took off. But now supplies are clearing up and those pressures are easing, meaning businesses are now discounting retail prices as their costs come down. Where you see it most is we have a measure uh, about profitability and profitability, um, the index was, think of the long-running index levels at around plus six, plus seven sort of thing. Profitability in the September quarter was plus 11, and in December it was plus five, and you get very negative numbers when you talk about retail profitability. So why would businesses all of a sudden be dropping prices and at the expense of profits? Well, Alan Oster says it's because they're increasingly prioritising hanging on to market share or keeping customers than growing their profits. Interesting about the survey, unlike our monthly survey, we asked questions about the outlook 
And what we've seen for the next three months is quite a big reduction in expectations for business conditions. So um, for the next three months, it was 17 in September quarter, and now it's 12. And their capital expenditure plans are also down a touch as well. In layman's terms, what's that telling you? It's telling me the business is basically worried about the short-term outlook. Alan Oster says it's the inevitable result of rising interest rates. Eventually, shoppers, weighed down by ever-increasing rents and mortgage repayments, start to look for bargains. And once profit-hungry businesses start offering those bargains up. And then you see it particularly in essentially things like household goods, sort of in the CPI, big forks there. Basically, you can't get some of your lounges and couches and all that sort of stuff off the shelf, you can't sell them. So therefore you discount them. This is good news for those worried about inflation, notably the Reserve Bank. The obvious question then is, when might the RBA see fit to cut interest rates? Some economists have the RBA cutting its cash rate as early as May, but Alan Oster thinks that's too soon. So I think the Reserve will also basically want to see where the labour market is. They want to see what the impact of tax cuts are. I personally don't think they'll have any impact, but um, they'll want to see. So I, I think they're more likely that you're going to have rate cuts, but not starting until the very end of the year. So we, we've got them temporarily in November. Economist Ray Dufty-Jones agrees with these predictions. Yeah, look, I think um, the RBA should be feeling fairly happy with the way that the impacts of their um, inflation uh, their interest rates. Uh, changes should have impacted on inflation. Inflation is certainly slowing. Uh, there's a few things that remain to be um, seen in terms of the impact on the price of energy, which is a major contributor to the cost of business. And of course, the implications for the changes to the stage three tax cuts and what that might mean for inflation as well. And just on the stage three tax cuts, to get the changes through Parliament, the government needs support from either the opposition or the Greens. The Greens want an increase to job seeker payments in return for their vote, an idea the Prime Minister appears lukewarm about. We'll always look at budget measures, but what we won't be doing is uh, trading across different issues. We're focused on this. This stands on its merits. That's a confident-sounding Prime Minister Anthony Albanese ending David Taylor's reports. Well, as you heard there, the Greens are demanding a better deal for those in need. But are they prepared to block the Stage 3 tax changes? The Greens leader, Adam Bant, joined me earlier. Adam Bant, thanks for being with us. The Prime Minister doesn't seem that keen on negotiating an increase to JobKeeper to get your support for Labor's tax cut changes. Is that the end of the matter? One of the things that we've learned over this Parliament is that Greens' pressure works. We were the only ones arguing that Labor's original tax cut policy was manifestly unfair and needed to be changed. And after many times backing it, finally the government's agreed and we're getting legislation before Parliament. We've also learned when we look at the housing legislation or the climate legislation that the government's may initially say there's no more money in the kitty, but with housing, the Greens pressure got $3 billion extra available for public and community housing. As this tax cut legislation hits the parliament where Labor hasn't removed the fundamental unfairness from their original policy with the top 20% of income earners still getting 50% of the benefit and politician billionaires getting a $4,500 a year tax cut, which is three times the average income earner. Our job now is to push for more for low and middle income earners. Um, if the coalition 
doesn't vote for it, then Labor needs to work with us. Um, we'll have some constructive proposals to put on the table, but we think more can be done for people who are doing it tough. But are you really going to stand in the way of money in the pocket of low and middle income earners at this time of painful cost of living pressure? Look, we wanted to see these unfair tax cuts for politicians and billionaires ditched yesterday. We've been arguing for some time now for more to be done for low and middle income earners by getting dental and Medicare, by wiping student debt, making childcare free, all of these things that could be done with the enormous cost of uh, of Labor's tax cuts for the very wealthy and the people in the top tax bracket. Sure, but uh, in order to push for those things, you would have to threaten at the very least to stand in the way of the government's tax cut changes. I mean, are you, are you prepared to block the Stage 3 tax changes? Well, like I said, we, we wanted to see reform on Stage 3 yesterday. We've been pushing for this to go for some time and it's taken us this long to get the government to bring legislation before Parliament. Now that it's there, the question we all have to ask as parliamentarians is, is this the best way of spending over $300 billion out of the budget on cost of living relief? Now, the Labor, as the legislation hits the Parliament, Labor has to make the case that politicians and billionaires and people in the top tax bracket should get $4,500 a year, while people on middle incomes are expected to be satisfied with an extra $15 a week. We don't think Labor has yet made that case. For the amount of money that is being spent on people in the top tax bracket to get a $4,500 a year tax cut under Labor's plan, you could pretty much fund getting dental into Medicare. They're the kind of issues that we think uh, need to be addressed as the legislation goes through Parliament. As I say, in the past, we've been able to get improvements to government legislation, and our job is to try and get more for low and middle income earners now. Mm. I note you, you haven't said you'll your block it, but I do, <laughs> I do need to move on to some other questions. Um, the, the government has paused funding to UNRWA, that's the UN's relief agency in Gaza, because about a dozen employees had connections to the October 7 terrorist attacks on Israel. But there are also reports 10% of UNRWA's Gaza staff, that's 1,200 people, have direct ties to Islamist militant groups. Do you want any further assurances from UNRWA or do you think this funding should be restored by the government immediately? Look, I haven't heard those second reports that you mentioned, but on the first ones that the government is relying on for their decisions, I'm very concerned about the actions the government's taking. The uh, UNRWA is a very large organisation that provides a substantial amount of aid to people who are living in a humanitarian crisis. At the moment, we know food, food, fuel, water has been cut off. People are starving. Uh, There is a massive humanitarian catastrophe looming, and UNRWA is one of the organisations that uh, that is trying to stop uh, collapse of uh, and uh, catastrophe for many people who were there. Now, we have uh, seen the government back this invasion of Gaza despite the fact that over 26,000 people have been killed, many of them children, and as day every day the death toll rises and still government won't review its position. And despite that happening over a period of several several weeks and um, the, it getting worse and worse by the day, the government acts very slow 
slowly on that and won't call for a permanent ceasefire, but will turn around and suspend funding within the space of 24 hours or so. That is double standards, and ultimately it's going to be the civilians on the ground in Gaza who, are su- who will suffer. Adam Bant, thanks for being with us. Thanks very much, David. And Adam Bant is the Greens leader. This is PM. I'm David Lipson. You'll remember the bitter political brawl at the end of last year over how to manage a group of more than 140 people released from immigration detention after the High Court ruled they couldn't be locked up indefinitely. The government was forced to rush legislation through Parliament imposing curfews and putting ankle bracelets on those released. That prompted several High Court challenges. Well, the ABC has learned three of those High Court challenges have now been dropped after the government quietly lifted the restrictions on the plaintiffs. Political reporter Matthew Doran is in our Parliament House Bureau in Canberra. Matthew, just remind us of what these challenges were about. Well, there were three challenges, and we must point out they were separate cases, but they did all hone in on a similar argument, that imposing curfews on people released from immigration detention and then fitting them with ankle bracelets to monitor their whereabouts were extreme and punitive measures. The first of these cases was brought on behalf of a Chinese refugee known by the pseudonym of S-151. He'd been in immigration detention after committing a crime while on an employment visa. The second case was launched by lawyers for an Afghan man referred to in legal proceedings as AUK-15. He'd received a fine and nothing more for an indecent assault while in immigration detention and had been behind bars for 11 years. And the third was a man from Sudan who'd arrived in Australia aged 13. He'd been convicted of several offences and he was then put in immigration detention. He was known by the pseudonym of RBJB. It's important to point out with, the, with those last two cases, those two men were actually out in the community prior to the High Court ruling on indefinite detention, which triggered this situation and that meant that their lawyers were arguing it was even more egregious that they were subject to these conditions. The vibe and it's sort of picking up on some of the issues that have been at the centre of a number of High Court cases in recent times were that these measures were so serious and such an infringement on liberty that they should be exercised by a judge, not be uh, put in place by a ministerial edict. Uh, The curious thing here is that not only have we got these three cases, we are also being told there are another two cases in a similar situation, challenges that were launched where the plaintiffs in those cases have now uh, also been told that they uh, are having those restrictions eased upon them. Right, so so why has all this happened? Well, when the High Court challenges were launched, these individuals were subject to ankle bracelets and curfews. So the moment that that those documents lobbed into the High Court's registry, they were subject to these conditions. Soon after, the conditions were eased. And while that is something that these individuals and their lawyers are clearly welcoming, it effectively scuttles their cases. They don't have the legal standing to run them because you can't show up to the High Court and argue you're being subjected to extreme and punitive measures when those extreme and punitive measures are no longer being enforced against you. It does lead to some questions as to why there was a change in position from the government. And there are a couple of potential conclusions that can be reached here. The first is that people, uh, these people are no longer considered a risk to the community and that they don't need to be subjected to this sort of monitoring. And the second, which is a bit more serious or consequential, is that the government may well be worried about this legislation facing any scrutiny in court. It's worried that it could fall over if indeed those challenges are heard. We do need to point out that those two conclusions can actually coexist at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. And Yeah, well, we remember that the government came under so much pressure last year from the opposition, and that's why they put in these, these very harsh restrictions. Uh, how has the government responded to this latest development? 
We put questions to the Immigration Minister Andrew Giles' office on this, asking why in the initial three cases the conditions were eased. We also asked how the government responds to suggestions that it did so to avoid legal scrutiny, to nobble these cases before they were actually formally heard. A spokesperson for the Minister said the government doesn't comment on legal matters or individual cases and went on to talk about the establishment of the Community Protection Board, which is uh, said to be constantly monitoring the situation for this group released from immigration detention. We do need to point out, though, that the Minister does have the power to ease restrictions if he's satisfied the individual doesn't pose a risk to the community, but there are gaps in the details here, and it does stand in stark contrast with some of the rhetoric from the government in recent months. Andrew Giles saying the conditions would generally apply across the board. His senior minister, the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, saying that if it was up to her, everyone in this group would be locked up once more. So uh, a lot of questions to be answered by the government, but not a lot of answers uh, coming forward. Matthew Doran there in Canberra. Well, to the Middle East and the leaders of Israel and Hamas appear to be edging closer to a ceasefire in Gaza in exchange for the release of more than 100 Israeli hostages. But tensions are escalating over Israel's claims. UNRWA staff were involved in the terrorist attack on October 7. Australia, the US, Britain and several other countries have paused their funding to the relief agency. And as Elizabeth Crancy reports, Australia's foreign minister is stressing UNRWA is one of the only groups able to help starving children in Gaza. As fighting continues in Gaza, debate rages at the United Nations Security Council. Israel is calling for an independent investigation into the conduct of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, in Gaza, after allegations some of the agency's staff took part in the October 7 attack. Brett Jonathan Miller is Israel's deputy UN ambassador. Israel welcomes the decision of many countries to suspend their funding to UNRWA and calls for an in-depth, independent and transparent investigation into the agency's conduct in the Gaza Strip, both regarding the involvement of UNRWA employees in the October 7th massacre and regarding the employment of Hamas operatives and the involvement of terrorist elements in its activities. Israel's accused of running a long-term agenda to destroy UNRWA, the Palestinian UN ambassador, Riyad Mansour. In dealing with the Israeli allegations against some UNRWA staff, one should never lose sight of these realities and of Israelis' stated goal for years now of dismantling UNRWA. The United States is one of more than a dozen countries, including Australia, which have pulled support for the agency. But in Washington, the UN's Senior Humanitarian and Reconstruction Coordinator for Gaza, Sigrid Karg, is meeting with government officials at the US State Department to work out a way to get aid into Gaza. They need it. We need to help them sustain. We need to give them prospects. And it's quite a tough task, uh, but with that, of course, we need the support, not only of the Security Council, but also of member states of the region. And I've managed to travel. Uh, I've had good uh, discussions and collaboration with the Jordanian government, uh, the Egyptian government, and also uh, the, uh, the Israeli government. It's not an easy task, but it's something where we cannot fail. US Secretary of State Antony Blinken says aid is vital to save lives in Gaza, but the UNRWA needs to be investigated. Uh, we have to look through the terrible allegations uh, that have been uh, raised with regard to some UNRWA uh, personnel. That's absolutely essential and we'll be looking uh, to see that the necessary work is done uh, to deal with that and address that, that situation. 
Australia has pulled its $6 million of funding for UNRWA. The Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, says aid needs to get into Gaza, but the allegations against the agency need to be investigated. These are deeply concerning allegations. Uh, and we have made clear they need to be thoroughly investigated and those responsible need to be held account. And I have directed this week Australia's humanitarian coordinator to lead urgent work coordinating with like-minded partners as well as UNRWA uh, on these uh, and other matters. But I think it is important that we remember why it is uh, that previous governments have funded this organisation, but also the scale of the humanitarian crisis and the absence of any alternatives. Roger Shanahan is a Middle East analyst. Secretary of State Blinken has said that uh, the intelligence is quite strong um, on which the accusations are based, so that's obviously of serious concern to international donors that uh, UNRWA has been infiltrated by active Hamas members. On the other hand, the information came out in the public domain the day after the International Court of Justice made its interim determination about South Africa's claims about genocide made against Israel. So the release of this information was timed to come over the top of the ICJ ruling, but there certainly appears to be some substance to the accusations. Are we any closer to seeing some sort of a peace deal or a ceasefire? There's certainly been some very high-level talks happening over the past uh, 48 to 72 hours. We've seen this uh, happen before without outcomes, but there appears to be in the public space some structure to the proposals, which is uh, a bit different to what we've seen before. So it appears that there may have been some progress made, but it's certainly not a done deal by any stretch of the imagination. That's Middle East analyst Roger Shanahan ending that report from Elizabeth Cramsey. For the past two months, Antarctic scientists have been conducting crucial work at a remote glacier threatened by climate change. The massive Denman Glacier could fuel sea level rise of up to one and a half metres around the globe. Researchers are pushing to better understand the glacier's history and gather new information about how and when it might change in a warming climate. Alexandra Humphreys has more. Edgeworth David Base Camp is incredibly remote. At 450 kilometres west of Antarctica's Casey Station, the camp has a handful of sturdy melon huts, a couple of large tents and about 20 smaller tents that have been home to researchers for the last two months. It's in the middle of a rocky, barren landscape. A frozen lake nearby doubles as a runway. David Souter is the science coordinator for the Denman Terrestrial Campaign and Chief research officer with the Australian Antarctic Division. This is probably the most ambitious science campaign that the uh, Antarctic Division has coordinated in at least 20 years. Here, 30 scientists are conducting research on the Denman Glacier. The glacier itself is uh, quite important. It's, it's very large and, in fact, we estimate that it has enough ice in it that if it melted, um, it would cause one and a half metres of sea level rise. It's a three-year project and could give scientists a good picture about the impact of climate change on Antarctica's ice. Understanding how elements like the Denman Glacier are changing, how the ice sheet is changing and how the ice shelves are changing and how that then influences things like 
uh, global ocean circulation and, and weather patterns and climate is incredibly important for understanding what those implications are for the rest of the world and how we might um, adapt to those changes. Dr Sarah Thompson is a glaciologist with the University of Tasmania. She's been in an even more remote area, a satellite camp at the Shackleton Ice Shelf. What we want to know is a lot more about how stable the system is at the moment, how it's likely to change in the next few years. Scientists know the Denman Glacier could significantly contribute to sea level rise, but what they don't know is how long it would take only that it wouldn't happen in our lifetimes. And some work that people have done with satellite imagery and, and various techniques in the last few years have suggested that there is there are small changes that are happening kind of around the point where the glacier starts to float. So there are very small signs that this system might be starting to show some signs of some signs of change. To find out more, the team has been doing hot water drilling. It's a difficult task in an unforgiving environment. We drilled just over 200 metres to get down into the ocean, but then as soon as we stop drilling, the hole will start to freeze up. So then we have quite a limited time window in which to send instruments down. We sent cameras down. The Denman Glacier has already retreated about five kilometres over the past few decades. Richard Jones is a senior research fellow at Monash University. He's trying to find out whether that retreat is normal or part of a worrying new trend. What we're really worried about is Denman Glacier retreating into this, a deep trough. So a couple of years ago, they discovered that actually beneath the glacier is possibly the deepest kind of terrestrial trough in the world. And this makes it really, really vulnerable to accelerated retreat. So we're, we are really worried that Denman Glacier has started to retreat and this might continue. The scientists will start heading home over the next few days, but their research will continue. Alexandra Humphreys reporting there. That's all we've got time for on this edition of PM. I'm David Lipson. Thank you so much for your company. We will be back at the same time tomorrow. Don't forget, you can catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. Until tomorrow, good night. I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. She's one of the most famous women in the world, so when sexually explicit images of Taylor Swift began appearing on social media, they went viral. Today, we meet with the American journalist who uncovered how a Microsoft tool was manipulated to produce the images. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listener.